Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauley, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I hope you enjoy this study. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Bible Study Podcast. Thanks, Travis. I'm excited to have another conversation with Caleb and Travis. Yeah, part two. Yes. The round table. (laughs) Last week's discussion, I thought, went. Very well. Yeah. If, if you guys haven't had a chance to listen to the discussion on the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, go back and yeah. listen to that one. That was a good good conversation. I really enjoyed that. I, Likewise. I, hmm. It was a I'm, lot of fun. Makes me excited about this week's conversation. What are we talking about today? So we got a question from Cynthia, and I'll just read the question itself. She had a lot of uh, other thoughts that she shared that were all fantastic and, and just some really good thoughts about children and reaching an age, you know, we often say age of accountability, mm. but the the gist of the question was this, are we born with a sinful nature? If not, what point does a child's misbehavior turn into sin? Um, and so that's a, that's a great question. It's one that theologians and Christians have struggled with and thought about for a long time. Uh, I know that that Caleb uh, brought up some really good points before we, we started recording, so I'm going to kind of toss it over to him, because uh, I, I don't think you can really have this conversation about um, sinful nature without talking about original sin, uh, because there is a, a thinking amongst uh, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of theologians, for a long time, it goes way back, uh, the idea that maybe that's inherited, you know, and maybe right. that's passed down, this sinful nature that we got from Adam. So, so why don't you take it from there, and then we'll kind of just bounce back and forth. All right. So, um, as far as just the phrase original sin, which is usually the catch-all phrase for do we or do we not have a sinful nature, mm-hmm. and when and where do we get it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that particular question, that title, original sin or ancestral sin, depending on how you translate ancient languages, mm-hmm. uh, dates all the way back to St. Augustine. Um, I've, I want to say early three, no, late 300 AD, third century or so. Sorry, Dr. Carey, I don't remember uh, <laughs> where he is in ancient history. Um, so you have, that's where the phrase original sin comes from. And mm-hmm. ever, and since, honestly, Augustine wrote the book on Christian theology in the West, everyone either tries and, to agree with and or by disagree the way, with. And by the way, I'm going to interrupt Caleb right here. And you can, you can tell that Caleb is a scholar because he says St. Augustine mm-hmm. instead of Augustine. So yeah. anyway, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to point that out, that he is using the correct pronunciation of Augustine. So anyway, sorry, yeah. on to more important things. But. Okay, and and for that, I've literally heard it both ways, and it honestly only bothers the uh, scholars. So if you want to say it, Augustine, it's go true. for it. Yeah, it's I, just for the fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it always, it always, I get a chuckle out of the those that, it, because it really is pronounced both ways. But yes. anyway, sorry. So. I, Totally derailed your conversation, <laughs> Augustine. You're good. So that's where the uh, concept or the modern Western concept of original sin comes from. And long story short, uh, original sin, as Augustine uh, frames it, is more akin in our uh, vocab as original guilt. Mm-hmm. Of Since Adam and Eve uh, fell in the garden in Genesis 3, um, that sin of uh, becoming like God, knowing good and evil, controlling uh, and the definitions of right is right and wrong is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that 
sin, since we, genetically speaking, were in Adam and in Eve, we sinned with Adam and Eve, and by extension, by nature of just being a human being, we are guilty and are condemned. Uh, Augustine didn't really want to go that far as far as in his arguments, but he was dealing with another problem entirely. So he had to basically say it backed himself into a corner. Mm -hmm. Uh, So other theologians after him tried to smooth out Augustine's uh, more angry words (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in places like uh, Thomas Aquinas and other scholars like that. So that's where the phrase original sin comes from. Um, But before we look at a sinful nature or a fallen nature, Mm -hmm. I think we should look at first the pre-fallen, the created nature, if you will, in Genesis 1. Um, In Genesis 1, um, God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and seven times he calls the creation good. But it is only on the sixth day when he looked at all of what he has done, uh, including uh, his masterpiece, the uh, mankind, the image of God, he gives the um, phrase, it was very good. Yeah. That's at the very end of Genesis 1. So so you have this n- concept of we were created good. Mm-hmm. Not just good, but very good. Being in the very image or likeness of God. Yeah. Being free will. Uh, following in our own nature. Uh, as God is good and God does freely what is in his nature, being good. Then we jump into Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, uh, the actual fall. Now you have the problem of, okay, do we have uh, what Augustine and others would call original sin as original guilt? Or do we suffer from original consequence? Yeah, That's where the, that's where the crux of a sinful nature or a fallen nature, mm-hmm. turns. Then, so, in generally in Christian thought, we say each man will suffer for his own sins, mm-hmm. will suffer the punishment for his own sins. And I knew the phrase was, um, each will die in his own, each will die for his own sins. Mm-hmm. So I just did a quick Google search because all scholars do that. <laughs> <laughs> that great library of Google. Yes. Yes. And that, that's only just for a starting point, and then you can go down all sure. your fun scholarly routes you want. Um, but when I did that, each will die for his own sins or suffer the consequences or suffer the guilt of his own sins would probably be the more apt, apt phrase using our distinction of guilt and consequence. Mm-hmm. Dates all the way back, or goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 24.16, which, uh, long story short, is basically a son cannot die for the sins of the son, a son cannot die for the sins of the father. Neither a father can die for the sins of the son. Right. And then you see this in Chronicles, which basically is a good king quoting Deuteronomy saying, I'm going to kill the people who killed my father, but I will not kill the sons of the men who killed my father mm-hmm. because each will die for his own sins. And then the prophets uh, in their mission statement from God, God says effectively, if you see someone doing sin and being dumb, that's their own problem. Each man will die for his own sins. You should continue preaching the word, mm-hmm. which is often a message of repentance because most of the prophets during, or at least the prophets that we have individual books from is dating back to the pre and mid exile mm-hmm. from Jerusalem. So that's, so if we have this um, concept of 
each will die for his own sins, will suffer the guilt of his own sins, then by that logic, which dates, which is part of the Torah, the law, mm-hmm. the very spirit of what, <laughs> the letter of God's law, then we do not have the, conse- the guilt of uh, Adam's sin and therefore all have sinned right. as far as saying we do not suffer the guilt of bringing sin into the world and being condemned for being by nature of being human. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't suffer the consequences. If I, for example, sin against Wes by, let's go all out and say if I harm Wes in any way, I have sinned against Wes, but the consequences of that uh, ripple as far as the ocean, proverbially speaking. The consequences of hurting Wes goes into Wes's family, mm-hmm. Wes's job, uh, Wes's ability to minister here at McDermott Road. Yeah. And on my part, my sin doesn't just rest on me. It, the consequences of, uh, of what I have done goes to my family of, and to my job and to everything that I am uh, involved in. Mm-hmm. So the consequences... Um, of sin are wide, but the guilt is on one. Yeah. So what was the consequences of original sin, of bringing sin into the world? Exile uh, from, from the garden, and eventually death. Mm-hmm. So we do suffer the, <laughs> we do suffer from original sin, but it's the consequences of uh, we live in now a broken world, mm-hmm. and we die. Mm-hmm. Man is mortal but we shouldn't have because we were in the garden. We had the right to eat from the tree of life. Yeah. Now we no longer have access to the tree of life because we ate of, because our ancestors ate of the tree of knowledge. Um, so we, we have that kind of setup. And then Genesis 1 through 11 just kind of shows how sin compacts or compounds over time. Mm-hmm. We, were out of the, we were out of the garden now we have sibling rivalry and the first martyrdom and murder because Abel was righteous. A right. righteous man dying for being righteous is martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Then we get into the flood story where um, God gets so fed up with humanity because they are evil all the time. And he, God says, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. Yeah. And then Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and mankind was saved through the flood. But even after that, we see this God reflects again on humanity saying, I won't destroy them with a global flood again, even though they are sinful f- from their youth. Yeah. And I want to pick up right there. And I, I think that you're, you're making so many great points because you're, you're exactly right that everyone is, and God God says this over and over again, and wise kings and wise leaders say this over and over again, that the children of the parents shouldn't have to suffer the guilt of their parents' sin unless, unless generationally they continue in those sins. And that and that's what we see so many times, is that generationally 
and collectively there is no repentance. And as long as you walk in the sins of your father, you will continue to experience the same types of consequences. And as you said earlier, that there's this compound effect that that, that sins continue to build and build and build. And that's that's the thing, is that we can say, well, no, I didn't inherit guilt. I'm, I'm not guilty simply because I was born a human being. I didn't Adam's sin wasn't passed on to me genetically. I didn't inherit his guilt. However, what I did is as soon as I was able to, I walked in my father Adam's footsteps and I committed the same type of sin. And so we see generationally us continue in those patterns of disobedience and sinfulness. And 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 some have, I think unfortunately, tried to wax philosophical, you know, and I I think that that's what what ends up happening with a lot of the scholars that you mentioned is we try to insert human philosophy into what's going on in Scripture instead of just taking the story that we have. But I do think it brings up some interesting questions like, why do we sin? Why do we have this tendency to repeat the sins of our fathers? And by fathers, I mean both individual families. We have a tendency to do that, to not only suffer the consequences, like you said, if if there's a, a father who's abusive and an alcoholic and uh, just a mean person, then his children not only have a consequence that they have to bear because of the sins of their father, but so many times that sin is perpetuated in their choices as well. And so you do see the inheritance of sin because we learn from the mistakes of our parents, but we also big picture wise, not just in an individual family, but in all the families of the world, we see this propensity. We see this tendency, this, uh, this nature that, that, that might be the wrong word, but it's a word that we, we often use and is part of the question. Are we born with a sinful nature? Why is it that we have this tendency, this proclivity towards sin? And you pointed out Genesis 8, and I think that's a really important passage here. When Noah and his family got off the ark, it says that he built an altar to the Lord. This is Genesis 8 and verse 20. Noah and built an altar to the Lord and took some of some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so God doesn't say, and it, it's ironic the way that that passage is said, because you would think that he was going to say, I will never again do this because man is good now. You know, we, we fixed him. Man is no longer evil from his youth. Or you would think he said, well, man is evil from his youth. Oh, well, I'm going to destroy him all again. But he doesn't say either of those two things. He says, I'm going to bear with them, and I'm never going to bring this sort of calamity again. I'm going to bear with man because I understand that his intention from in his heart, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't say he inherited that nature from Adam. It doesn't say ever since all of the things we try to make the text say, but it does say that from the time that we are young, it doesn't say from the time we're born, but from the time we're young, we have an evil intention in our heart. And and there is a, a tendency 
towards sin. We have a propensity for evil. Uh, some might say a bent towards evil. Uh, and so that, I think that is part of the biblical story, that there is this, this intention in our heart that needs to be fixed, this problem that is a heart problem that manifests itself in evil actions. Right. Um, uh, when I was looking at the uh, at this before we did the uh, recording here, uh, just kind of the different ideas of sinful nature or original sin, depending mm-hmm. on how you want to uh, use your key terms for. Right. Um, the one that I just was drawn to the most was this concept of sin is a disease and humanity, the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, if you want to use C.S. Lewis's terms, um, are the uh, host of, mm-hmm. to this disease that yeah. by nature of being a part of humanity, we have already been outside of paradise where things can be good. Now that we are in this uh, outside of the garden, outside of perfection, you can't help but be incomplete. Yeah. Incomplete would probably be the best word I would use to describe this bent yeah. towards evil. Incomplete. I like that. Yeah. And and in a way I like to to use it because it seems like it seems like the way Paul because I should say this. The NIV translates the word for flesh as sinful nature. I think that's this is Wes personally. I personally think that's a mistake uh, because I think that that's that's very interpretive. I think where it's it's accurate is that they don't want us to make the mistake of reading it too literally because right. flesh can mean skin. And obviously, when Paul talks about our flesh, he's not talking about our skin. He's not talking about the fact that we have an epidural layer. You know, that's not what he's right. talking about. He's talking about something to do with who we are, are the nature of humanity. And he uses the word flesh as a metaphor, but I think sinful nature goes too far. The way I like to put it is that flesh is a metaphor for weakness. And it's both a metaphor for weakness physically and morally. And so sometimes, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul says flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, he means the weakness, the mortality of our being. Like right now we are mortal, and so flesh has to do with our mortality, but it also has to do with our morality. And so both in in our mortality and in our morality, we are weak. And I like the way that you put that, Caleb, incomplete. We have this incompleteness or this disease. And, and the way Paul puts it in Romans 7, it, it and I love the fact that you said disease because it's almost like he talks about sin as something that lies dormant, and that's my word, he, his word is dead. It lies dead within a person, but it's almost like it's a dormant seed or like a dormant cancer or a dormant gene or a dormant disease that he says when the law comes along, the law wakes it up. It brings it to life. He says, it's not the law that was bad. The law didn't make me sin. But he said that there is this sin that lies dormant in me. I'm going to read Romans 7, starting in verse 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And I don't think Paul is 
this is again West personally. I I don't know how you guys feel about it. There's different interpretations of Romans seven. Some people think this is Paul's personal struggle with sin. I don't think this is Paul Paul's personal struggle with sin. I think he's putting himself in the position of every person and saying this is humanity's struggle with sin. I wouldn't have known sin if it wasn't for the law, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So I think this is really, really touches on Cynthia's question because her her question is, at what point does a child's misbehavior turn into sin? And I think I think Paul addresses that. It's at the point that the the law of God comes along, which is not birth, by the way. It's not when you're born. It's when you reach a certain age where you begin to learn this is what God wants of you. This is what God wants for you. And that commandment, that that eating of the fruit, so to speak, that that knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, it awakens something in us, this desire in us, this evil desire in us. And and then sin comes alive, and when sin comes alive, we die. And so Paul, I, again, I like I like that metaphor of disease because in, in this context, it's almost like that's what he's saying, that there's there lies this dormant disease in us. And when the commandment comes along, it wakes that up. And I and Cynthia in her email, she she went into detail about children and how when you tell a child to do something, there there comes a point when you can begin to see this little bit of rebellion in them. And I don't know that that's the point at which it becomes sin. I, I think I think that in this case, Paul is really talking about learning the law. He's really talking about how the law woke up this this part of him, this not part of him, but but this sin that lied within his flesh, lied within his weak nature, his weakness. And so it woke up and he died. And I think that there comes a point in a human's life where we are presented with the truth from God, whether that's the truth that comes through the written law or the law that's written on our heart, and we realize this is the right, good, godly thing to do, and and that commandment wakes up a part of us, and when that part of us comes alive, and I shouldn't say that part of us, but that part that lies within our body, it comes alive, and then we die because we give into, we make the choice to do what our father Adam did or what our mother Eve did. Yeah. Um, uh, what's really interesting is um, <laughs> going back to Genesis 3 and rereading the, the fall, um, you can really read it in two ways. One, as, as a historical account of this is how mankind was created and how we uh, fell and left paradise or the garden, both are the same word, just right. once more. Poetic, yeah. Um, but we could also read this. I would like this. I want to say allegorically, but I kind of, I'm kind of hesitant to say it that way. But we can read our own story into yeah. this. Yeah, it's an archetype. It is. It and, really is. And and just because an archetype works as an allegory doesn't mean that it's not historical. So yes. yeah, I, I I totally agree. I don't think that you have to dismiss it as purely al- allegorical to say it's also an archetype. Right. Yeah. And I think um, in this 
if in the allegorical reading of of Genesis 3, the only thing that's different between us, Adam and Eve, is that we are not in paradise. We are not in uh, a literal heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. We are not in the light of the Lord. We are in the darkness. It's when we see the light of the Lord, uh, are told what is right and what is wrong, not just because, hey, don't touch the fire, fire is hot, Yeah. but more of this do good. It's when that light comes in, then since we are in the darkness, what hides in the darkness, the, the serpent, and mm-hmm. in, in, uh, to use Genesis 3 language, uh, slithers up. And because we're in its home turf, it wins yeah. every time yeah. because we are <laughs> we are mortals craving immortality that we lost. Mm, yeah, and yeah. it's only because and what's basically the entire message of the Old Testament is we've lost this immortality to be with God that we crave for this the tree of life once again. Yeah, and search in every last possible place but the place where we need to find it. Yeah. And it needs a, and it, there needs to be a human to bring us in from darkness yes. to light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in the exile. Yeah, I, I think, man, I, I think this question, like asking about our, you know, sinful nature, I think that is sort of the, the kind of the fundamental question of, you know, is man good or mm-hmm. or is man bad? It's yeah. sort of the fundamental question that I think we all have to wrestle with. Um, but I think it also presents how you answer it is going to determine, I think, a lot about your life and i think you know we we keep coming back to this idea i i keep thinking of this phrase in my head the curse of consciousness mm. and how you know what happens when adam and eve eat the fruit they don't run away in shame because they ate the fruit they run away in shame because they realize they're naked mm-hmm. they realize you know their eyes are opened and they realize we shouldn't we shouldn't be like this you know that that there's you're outside of the trust of God. You know, I, it reminds me of even of Peter stepping out onto the water. And when he's fixed, his eyes are fixed on Jesus, when his eyes are fixed on the, you know, the originator, the creator, the our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, he's fine. But as soon as he, but sin is the illusion of taking care of yourself. Mm. I, I think it, you, it almost always comes back to that. It, he, he sees the wind and the waves and that you know, that fight or flight kicks in. And that's where we lose it. That's where we lose the, you know, so, so I think, you know, thinking about those kind of stories, mm-hmm. it makes me think about what we are. Are we sinful or, you know, are we inherently sinful or, 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 or not? I mean, that's the wrong question. It's like, we're, we're trying to already ap- apply a negative or a positive to yeah. us. It's like, what we are is self-conscious yeah. and there's a curse in that. But I have to believe that if God allows that, it means it means he's going to make something even more beautiful out of that's out of what consciousness can bring to the hum, human existence. The added layer of not only are we the image of God, but we also are like God in that we we are aware. And uh, you know the, the the downside that we you know we keep coming back to is shame. Like you know I, I was, as before we even start talking about like the the specifics of the question the age of accountability mm-hmm. i started thinking about a kid you know or when i was a kid and how i don't remember the exact year but i kind of remember when i started getting embarrassed for things 
that was where I started to, you know, have this concept of, um, you know, just in terms of behavior, you know, oh, when I talk too loud, people got on to me and I felt bad about that. I felt embarrassed. That kind of starts, you know, again, it's that self-consciousness. It's that I'm aware that I'm a, I'm being a problem. I'm aware that I'm, and, and you don't think about, you don't think about animals doing that. You don't think about, we're not mindless cogs in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we have our own intentions, but I think that the antidote, the antidote, the, the, you know, thinking about it in these terms that it's just, look, we're just self-conscious that presents, you know, I think the opportunity for meaning, like, because I think that, I mean, that's what we're all religious or not searching for is some sort of meaning to why are we here? Why are we going through this? Why do I feel shame because of things I've done? Why do I feel guilt? Why do I? And I mean, I think that's, that's certainly what I find in, in scripture. It's certainly what I find in Jesus is meaning to this, this is not all in vain. Your struggles are not in vain. Your sin is not, it, your sin doesn't have to be in vain like that. If that's not the most beautiful thing about Christianity, about our savior, that he's not just saying, you know, I'm going to make you good. He's even saying, I'm going to redeem your bad. You know, he, he can bring glory out of, out of the, the messed up stuff that we do to each other. There, there can be, there can, you know, he can turn that into something beautiful. And yeah. I think that, man, that. Well, you bring up some really good points. I, I, you know, it's interesting and, and kind of tying that back to what Caleb was saying. I, I think that we, we we're acting on very natural impulses. And, and I think that, that what it's interesting the way that Paul will put it. James says that we're, we sin. Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So I, I think that in all of these things, it's a process that is unfolding and has unfolded for everyone and will unfold for everyone, unfortunately. Unfortunately, we we have these desires, whether that's desires to know something or desires to have something or desires to possess something or desires to experience something, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the sinful pride of life. We have these desires, whether it's for pleasure or for knowledge or for whatever it may be, and then we act on those things in in wrong ways in order to satisfy our longing, in order to satisfy our desire. And we, we all have these, these tendencies to satisfy those desires in sinful ways. And Paul, the way Paul puts it, it says, I, I wouldn't have even known I shouldn't have done that thing if the instruction to not do that thing, in this case covet, even came about. And that, that law that was good, it brought about sin in me. And, and then he says, let's let's keep reading in verse 13. He said, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And that's kind of what Travis was saying, that it's it's condemned as being sinful. And if it wasn't for the law, and it wasn't for me acting on these impulses that sin was in me, then it, it wouldn't be condemned. And now because the law drew it out and it revealed it for what it was, it could be condemned. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. And again, 
I, I like that word flesh, as long as we understand that there's a metaphor there of I'm weak, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And, and it brings up an interesting point that, Travis, you kind of touched on. Are are human beings inherently good or inherently bad? Are we inherently good creatures that do good things or inherently bad creatures that do bad things? And this is where we, we might even get into Calvinistic thinking that, that, that believes in and accepts the idea of total depravity, that even, even when we do good things. We're, we're doing them with bad intentions. So even our goodness is badness. Even our goodness is sin. And so Calvinistic thinking would say we are so totally, utterly depraved that there's no, there's no goodness in us. And we couldn't, we couldn't choose to do God's will, even if we wanted to, uh, because we are, are broken. And it takes the irresistible work of the Spirit before we can even begin to do that. I don't. I don't think I would go that far. I think Paul is saying that we have this tendency towards sin. We have this weakness within us. But he also says in Romans two, and we kind of touched on that earlier. I think Caleb, you did. That he says that Gentiles who do not have the law sometimes do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so Paul says, there is something of God's law that is naturally written on the heart, even of the Gentiles who haven't even heard the law. They have the law written on their hearts and on their conscience. And so are we inherently good or are we inherently bad? Well, I, I would say that we are inherently image bearers of God who have within our nature the ability to reflect something of God's goodness and love into the world even before our redemption. But we also have this tendency towards evil. And so we're sort of a mixed bag. And Paul says, I've got within me this desire to do what's good, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. And he, he, he describes this cycle that I think we all experience, that humanity experiences, this recognition of what is good, but also this tendency towards what is evil and wrong. And his concluding question for chapter 7 is, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. <laughs> Is this cycle of sin and death, who's going to break us out of this? And the answer is Jesus. And and then he'll go on in chapter 8 and talk about the work of the Spirit within, within humanity to already begin to break the cycle that we don't have to obey and live by the flesh, that we can begin to live by the Spirit. So I think there is something to be said for the fact that human beings have the ability to recognize and do good. Naturally, it is within our nature to recognize and do good, but it's also our nature to be weak and to give in to the sinful desires of the flesh. And we have all done both. We have all done good. And so we can look out at humanity and we can say, man, human beings are awesome. And they have this tendency, even unbelievers, even atheists 
have this tendency towards doing good because they're image bearers of God. Some call that common grace, that God has blessed them with a, a grace that is common to everyone. And so they have this tendency towards being good and being kind and helping other people, even without a belief in God, because they're created by God. And so they reflect something of God's goodness and love. But we can also look at humanity and say, man, what a mess. We have this tendency to hurt each other and destroy each other, even people that are supposed to be good, even people that have the law, even people that know what's right. They still, even though they know it, they still destroy each other and hurt each other. Why is that? And Paul describes this is why it is, and this is our resolution. This is the only one, he, Jesus, is the only one who can break us free from this cycle, and we can begin to walk by the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, whenever I ever read this, I kind of, when I'm trying to actually consciously control my thoughts of what is he actually saying here, I would probably best describe it as, are we good or are we evil? It's mm -hmm. more of, we are enslaved image bearers yes. of God. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. That's exactly the language, enslavement, yeah. Because, yes, we were, by the fact that we are creations of God, we are good. Not just good, but very good. That's right. Uh, Genesis 1, but anyone who slaves is a slave to sin, and our ancestors, our original father and mother, Adam and Eve, sold themselves into the slavery of the serpent, or more accurately, the slavery of sin. So we were born into slavery of sin. We, and we, whenever we get the first instance of the word sin in Genesis 4, yeah, Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, we get just a description of just how nasty sin is. We have this described as sin is crouching at your door like some kind of ravenous beast. Yes. And But you must master it. Right. It can be done, but by the fact that we are slaves to this beast, <laughs> ice, ice has a better chance of surviving in an active volcano than, mm, that's good. <laughs> that's good. than we do of mastering yeah. Uh, sin. Yeah. Well, I think to your point, Wes, like the, like I, I appreciate so much the the contradiction, the complexity of a thought. Like, you can look out and say, "Man, you know, peop, so many good things, so many good people," yeah. and you can simultaneously look out, depending on the day, depending on the news, depending on your mood, and go, you know, how evil is man? Are there is there anything we won't do to each other? Yeah. And both and are true. Both are true. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think that's where a little pessimism actually kind of benefits me. It makes me more optimistic, especially in my faith, and going, it's kind of impressive that we do good at all. Like, it's given how natural it is to, you know, to be selfish, to look out for my own interests, to, you know, be ruined by my own self-consciousness and it's it's pretty incredible it's mm -hmm. pretty inspiring mm -hmm. that we can do good that you can you know even in the darkest corners of this earth uh, you'd probably be able to find something some good oh, going yeah. on yeah you know? absolutely when i and i love that because that's that's exactly what romans is all about is how both the jew and the gentile are enslaved to this metaphorical pharaoh which is sin with a capital S, and sin has become the slave master, and the consequences and the result is death, and how 
Jews and Gentiles have all become slaves of sin, and through the Spirit, Jesus is breaking us free from that, and Romans chapter 8, I have to put a plug in for, that he's going to eventually break the entire creation free from its slavery to corruption, and that is the work of Jesus and the Spirit is redemptive work that takes the goodness of what humanity and all of creation is supposed to be. And humans are, I love that you keep bringing us back to the Imago Dei, to the image of God. We are image bearers of God that are enslaved, and and then we become what we're supposed to be. I mean, I, I, I suddenly have all of these images from Tolkien in, in my mind. You know, I think about Gollum, you know, and, and what the ring did to him and what the ring did to everyone. The longer they held on to it, it, it made them into a monster, and they're supposed to be human. And that's what Jesus does for us. He frees us from the monstrosity that is sin so that we can become really, truly human beings the way we were created to be. And so I want to, as we close and wrap up, I want to come back to the idea of baptism because we put a lot of, the way I put in my notes is we talk about the age of accountability, but to me it's more about the age of responsibility. That 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 there there needs there comes a point in time in, in human development where someone is ready to take on the yoke of discipleship, take on the responsibility of discipleship, to be able to count the costs, as Jesus says in Luke fourteen, and decide. I want to be set free from this cycle of sin and death, and I want to make Jesus my my rabbi. I want him to be my king. I want him to be my high priest. I want to follow him and and take the path of a disciple. That's not a choice that an infant can make, but that's what baptism is. I think so many times, and I think rightfully so, we put an emphasis on the forgiveness that happens at baptism. And I think there is a biblical emphasis that happens at baptism, that there is a forgiveness that happens at baptism, but there's also a beginning of a path and a life of discipleship that happens at baptism. And I think that that's the part of it that we have to recognize, that sometimes a kid can say, I've done bad things, I want to be forgiven of my bad things. Like you said, Travis, sometimes, you, well, I talk loud, and, yeah. you know, and and I got in trouble for that, and so I want to be forgiven of being bad and disobeying my parents. But baptism is more than that. It is deciding I want to take on the yoke of discipleship, and I want to be a disciple of Jesus even if it costs me my life. And so I'm going to die to self, and I'm going to live for Jesus. And that's a responsibility that takes some some knowledge. But I think that, that that's not in conflict with what Paul is saying here, that sin— and the enslavement to sin is a process. James says the same thing in James 1, that this is a process that evil desire leads to giving into that desire, which leads to sin, which leads to death. And so this is a, a, a development that happens, and I think both of those things can happen sim- simultaneously, where a young person is realizing their enslavement, and then they're also having the opportunity if they're growing up in a Christian home, they're having the opportunity to be presented with the the opportunity to follow Jesus, and they have to be the ones to decide whether or not to take on the responsibility of discipleship. And so for me, it's not about the age of accountability, like at what age is God going to hold them accountable for their sins? 
And that's an interesting discussion, but my faith is in a gracious God, and I'm not really worried about whether or not God's going to be fair about who's accountable and who's not. God's fair, God's gracious, God's kind, God's merciful. I have complete faith in that, so I'm not worried about a child who dies before they're baptized. What I'm concerned about is making sure that a a young person has reached the age of responsibility where they have the maturity to take on the yoke of discipleship. Yeah, and in that kind of vein of... uh a child who dies before baptism. I've heard um, uh, from uh, uh, spiritual fathers, if you will, uh, from across time in Christian history, uh, even to today, saying something to the effect of, you don't go to hell on a technicality. That's right. Hmm. Um, So it would be more, so if, if anyone's listening and saying, oh no, my I had a child that unfortunately passed away. Uh, will I see them in the new creation? You don't have to worry about their soul on that front. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that, that's exactly right. And I, I, this is getting into a whole other subject. But I, I think, <laughs> I think we do when it comes to baptism. I've seen people that get really concerned of their toes stuck out of the water or their some of their hair was out of the water or how old do you need to be or whatever. And 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 some of those questions I, I appreciate because people, you know, we, we want to respect God's instructions for us, absolutely. But I think at the same time we have to recognize that sometimes our questions or fears reflect a theology that is not consistent with scripture. And my faith is not in getting baptism right. My faith is in the grace and mercy of God. And and so I, I think you're exactly right. You're not going to be punished by God on a technicality, that God is in the business of redemption and salvation. And if a child's not ready to take on the responsibility of discipleship, then they shouldn't be baptized. And and when they're ready to take on the responsibility of, of discipleship and there's no exact age that that happens, then then help them and walk with them. And yes, that's the point at which we experience forgiveness for our sins and the the working of the spirit. Uh, but but we shouldn't we shouldn't rush that that point, and we shouldn't be worried about technicalities. And I think another thing too that really that's part of this conversation that really influenced my decision to allow my oldest son to be baptized was the fact that when someone recognizes that their inability to do this on their own and their need for the Spirit's help, that's a part of this conversation too. That sometimes sometimes we almost insist that our kids become good before they can be baptized. It's like that's that's what we're saying here is impossible. You're not going to become good on your own. That the only way to break free from this cycle of sin and death is recognize the need for Jesus and the need for the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. That the only way to become better, the only way to break free is through the work of the Spirit. And so I didn't want to deny my son the privilege of receiving the Spirit's help when he recognized his need for the Spirit's help in his life. Yeah, because I think, you know, like you want to get better. Uh, definitely a good way to do that is responsibility. Like, yeah. you, you know, you give them the chance. You yeah. give them that you give somebody the chance to take up my yoke, yeah. as uh, as our Lord and Savior would say. And, it, it, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen just merely on our own on our own path. And and that's what we tend to do. And that's what the law 
could potentially do. Like, just follow the rules, just do all of these right things, and then you'll break free from sin and death. And Paul says that it doesn't work like that. You can't. It's just more sin and more death and more sin and more death. And the more I try to do all of the good things that I'm supposed to do, the more this is the destructive nature of any sort of legalism, any sort of ideology that says the way to break free of sin and death is to just follow all the rules and do all of the right things. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Only the Spirit can do it. Only he brings renewal. Only he brings redemption. And he can redeem you if if you allow him to do that. But on our own, it's just this this ongoing cycle. And I think if we just tell our kids, well, just be good and make good decisions and do good things, we perpetuate this cycle. And when they recognize it's time to take on the yoke of discipleship and to accept the help and the responsibility of being a follower of Jesus, that's when it's time for them to do that. I really hope you enjoyed this Bible study, and I hope you'll subscribe to hear future episodes of the podcast. A big thank you to Travis Pauly, as well as our McDermott Road Church family for helping to make this podcast possible. And a special thanks to all of you for listening. We love you. God loves you. And we hope you have a wonderful day.